I'm going to read this. Moki Cherry was a Swedish interdisciplinary artist and designer who worked in tapestry, painting, music, clothing, collage, woodwork, and ceramics. She predominantly used materials that had a relationship to functionality and daily life. Her highly skilled handcraft skills are apparent in her well-known textile applique pieces, as well as in her wood carvings, paintings, and clay works. Moki's practice emphasizes themes relating to the natural world and how humans coexist with nature and our environment through art, family, sound, education, and spirituality. Moki envisioned her life and work as an interconnected way of life that she herself described as home as stage, stage as home, in which her artworks were experienced in the home, in music and theatre performances, workshops, schools, and in art galleries. Moki was born in northern Sweden in 1943. Since early childhood, she was absorbed by the world of animals and nature, choosing to spend most of her time alone in the forest or observing the different makers and artisans who lived nearby. She left school at 16 to become an apprentice for a women's clothing design brand in a small city in southern Sweden, and in her late teens, Moki moved to Stockholm to study pattern cutting, fashion and textiles at Beckman School of Design. Two years into her studies, she became a mother. And the Beckman family, who owned the college and had become very fond of Moki, allowed her to bring her baby daughter Nena into the college and gave her a tiny workroom to sew in while her baby slept. <laughs> I think it's the first time, maybe the last time it happened at the college, but <laughs> I was thinking today um, that it would be an excellent model for all educational institutions, to be honest. Yeah. Moki was determined to become a fashion designer, but through unexpected life experiences and demands as a parent, and after meeting her partner, the jazz musician Don Cherry, her career moved away from a focus on fashion, and due to a need to survive as well as create, her practice quickly developed into painting, tapestry, music, set design, and theatre. Moki first met Don Cherry in 1963 in Stockholm, while he was on tour with Sonny Rollins. In the following years, Don returned to Stockholm on various tours and eventually he and Moki decided to build a life together. After Moki graduated in 1966, the couple travelled to New York where she intended to work in fashion design. And she received an excellent job offer as an artist designer for a New York fashion photographer called Bert Stern. Although, simultaneously, the collaborations between her and Don began to take centre stage in her life. And during this period in New York, Moki created the album artwork for Don's record, Where is Brooklyn? which was the first of many album covers she would go on to make for his music. During this time in New York, Moki began making paintings, tapestries and costumes, of which many were used to create colourful environments for Don's performances, albums and their educational collaborations. In the years to follow, Moki and Don Cherry started a live art and music project called Movement Incorporated that they, lately, that they later renamed Organic Music and at times Organic Music Theatre. Moki's second child, Eagle Eye, was born in 1968, and over the next few years, the family lived in various short-term homes in Stockholm, New York, and in a VW bus around Europe until they bought an old, empty schoolhouse in southern Sweden in 1970. The schoolhouse became a base for the family while they continued to tour with organic music performances and workshops around Europe, USA, Mexico, and Japan for most of the 1970s. My uncle Eagle Eye has said on many occasions that Moki's greatest artwork was her life itself, and the home and world she created in the Torgap schoolhouse is an example of this, where she built and painted almost everything in the house, maintained a huge flower and vegetable garden, and helped facilitate a children's-led theatre company for over seven years every summer called Octopus Theater, where she made the sets and costumes. 
The schoolhouse was a creative and educational hub for musicians, artists, friends and children. Where Don and Moki's family life and artistic practice were completely intertwined and embedded in the home space. Moki had only two solo exhibitions during the decade of the 1970s. But in the Organic Music Project, she was instrumental in creating a radical approach to audiovisual art where children and education were at its core. The family and her artwork were inseparable. A great example of this was in 1971, when the Cherries were invited by the curator Pontus Hultian to take part in an exhibition at Modern Museet in Stockholm. They were invited to create a living artwork for the duration of the whole exhibition. For three months, the family lived at the museum and ran daily workshops and happenings in a geodesic dome built by Swedish artist Bengt Carling under the guidance of Buckminster Fuller. Inside the dome, Moki created costumes, tapestries, sculptures and paintings on a daily basis, including a large mandala that she painted day by day on the floor. The family lived and cooked in a small room in the museum and children, musicians and museum visitors could join whatever art and music Don and Moki were making in the dome space during the time. From the mid-70s onwards, the Cherry family lived between Sweden and New York City. They rented a loft in an empty industrial building in Long Island City, which Moki built into a living space and studio. Moki began to focus more on her personal artwork and exhibitions. She had several large solo shows in the early 80s in Sweden, but overall she was very aware and frustrated with how her artworks and artistic achievements of the last decades were absorbed by the well-known music and reputation of her husband. And yeah, I think I just add there that you know, she had many exhibitions during the 90s and 2000s, but she really struggled, I think, to, for people to really recognise that all the artworks that she had made that were also part of their collaborations and performances were most went often uncredited, and so it was really difficult for her to kind of, like, be recognised as an artist herself, and also for galleries to be interested in showing textile works um, at that time. So, yeah, during the 1980s, Moki and Don collaborated less. From time to time, she designed album artwork and clothing for Don and his bands. They separated at the end of the 1980s. Don moved to San Francisco while Moki continued to live between Sweden and New York. Moki frequently exhibited in both places and her work progressed into sculpture using wood and electric light, ceramics and collage. She returned to painting and tapestry in the last few years of her life. Moki Cherry passed away at home in Torgamp in 2009. Thank you. So you are the person that's now in charge of unpicking this extraordinary life. And I'd just like to get a sense of what it is that you're dealing with, because the schoolhouse in the south of Sweden that we see in those films is still there. So when you were talking about looking at the estate of Moki Cherry, which sounds terribly grand, she wasn't somebody that was working with a commercial gallery, so she doesn't have some kind of archivist that's there with white gloves on. What was it, what is it that you're dealing with? What, what is this stuff that you're going through? What? Okay, yes. <laughs> it's definitely not uh, <laughs> at all that glamorous, no. Because it's like quite nuts, the unpeeling yeah. things. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's fun and it's wonderful, but um, uh, it's much more like a really, really dusty attic <laughs> where we also had lots of um, endangered bat species living <laughs> um, and just boxes full of all sorts of crazy stuff that... Um, Moki didn't throw anything away, wonderfully, barely at all, but it's definitely not organised, so just always, like, uncovering and figuring out, you know, all of the story and the history and finding wonderful 
things that she's made, of course, photos and letters and just sort of like, I guess, all different parts of the story of really, you know, all the work that both her and Don did, which was a huge amount of work, really, in several decades, and that she continued to do also a lot of, you know, um, artwork all the time and was always creating in one way or another. So I get the sense that you're uncovering aspects of her life that actually maybe you guys weren't aware of while she was alive, that actually it's been, uh, have there been real revelations that you've turned up? Are you seeing a really different aspect of her? Yeah, I mean, she was, something I didn't mention actually that is important to mention is that text and writing was a really important part of her practice. And also, of course, you can see a lot of text in the actual artworks in the tapestries and drawings and paintings but also she wrote all the time uh, there's so many um, sketchbooks and diaries and um, letters I mean um, weirdly hundreds of letters that she doesn't seem to have ever mailed to anybody <laughs> <laughs> because I don't know whether she ever actually got to, uh, together to send them to the post office <laughs> or maybe she wrote versions and then wrote another version I'm not really sure but um, she I've learned so much also from all of her writings because she would reflect and write all the time about her life and her feelings and her experience and um, and generally what they also what they were doing and which is I mean wonderful because really I have learned so much more about her that you know even though I spent so much time with her growing up it's, you don't really talk about all these things that have happened you know on a daily life decades ago. I, I just wanted to interrupt just for thinking about these boxes because it's just so funny because. Just to like do a quick little insight, like you pull a box out of the attic and basically Moki would have gone, I've got to tidy up a space because <laughs> someone's coming. Or So she would just pick up a bunch of whatever it was, mail, a newspaper, bits of paper, put them into the, a box, thinking, well, I'll go and get it later and sort it out. So basically there are collections of these boxes, you know, and like one of these boxes that we pulled out was like, we had a bin bag. We said, we can bin that, we can bin that, and there'll be an old receipt, some old bills. And then there was, like, a piece of paper with Allen Ginsberg had made himself a backstage pass. Do you remember that thing? <laughs> oh, yeah. You're like, yeah, I'm Allen Ginsberg. I need to gain backstage at this gig to see Don Cherry or whatever. We were like, wow, like, thank God we didn't get... So it's a bit like that. Anyway, I can, sorry. Sorry for inter- yeah. <laughs> I can relate to that so much, actually. It's like people are coming around, jumping in the book. But obviously, if you're Andy Warhol, you do that and you tape it up and you say, this is archive box 417. Um, so it's, there's a kind of lack of um, pomposity to it as well that's just very practical. But I, I think it's really interesting because we're seeing all of this work in the gallery at the moment. It's, and I know the, the ICA is very much like a kind of friendly home kind of gallery but it's still a white walled gallery and we're seeing it in this I mean I, I hate to use like judgmental words like sterile but I mean it's a very different space to the space that you three would have experienced these works in and Tyson I'd love to get your impression of kind of rem- what these works were like in situ uh, coming into the gallery are these works that you were familiar with growing up with your grandmother I mean yeah it's quite funny my cousin's here um, and we were talking about it today you're we like oh yeah they had been at the house recently this summer and noticed like oh yeah there's a gap there 
and walked in and we we're like, oh yeah, that's that's usually at that bit in the house. There's um, one of the um, lights, the um, woodwork lights that are in the gallery my, uh, lives in my sister's house, our younger sister, and she'd come downstairs from having a shower and was like, where's my lamp? <laughs> Mum's like, it's in the ICA until September. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I think the first time I walked into the show, like it really hit me because it feels, you know, and wherever the the pieces hang in all of the shows that that Naima's worked on or that Moki's had in the last few years I feel like there's a feeling um of being in the house Mm. there was one show in Copenhagen we just kept going back and just kind of sitting there because it does feel like uh when they're in our home or in Moki's home and I think that's really beautiful um yeah and then for you I mean this was was this all the stuff that was surrounding you in your day-to-day as a child? Was it more memories of being on the road with your parents? Does walking into that show really bring back a lot of memories for you? I mean, yes. It's, it's actually like very moving in many different ways. Sometimes it's, um, you know, literally just makes me cry. But it's also very joyous and very deep, you know, because it's part of our... DNA, you know what I mean? It's like such a huge part of who I am and that's something I've really been realizing more and more. I guess I'm just also at a place in my life where I'm kind of naturally, without being nostalgic, kind of just reflecting and feeling lots of fragmented things come together. (laughs) And so it's very powerful, but I think also... Beyond that, it's just incredible to see all the different kinds of people that are coming in, for instance, in here, that are interested in the work, and to know that it lives on. And so, of course, my memory comes from a place where there's like a grain of like almost before I can remember, you know, where it was just going on, you know, it was a part of how we lived, if we were going to travel, you know, the sewing machine would be going all night and there would always be music or net or whatever Moki needed to listen to to get there. Do you know what I mean? Because it was like... And getting there was, you know, about sewing the pieces that needed to be done, the bags that they needed to go in to clothes, you know, and whatever other visions she was holding. So it's... It's funny because in some ways it's been such a huge part of just the way things are, if that makes sense. Because when you're a kid and you're growing up in the place, it's your home and it's where you come from. And so it has a kind of normality because it's home. Yeah. And home is, you know, it's that's the heart of everything. So, um, uh, but I think, yeah, I was just going to sort of end up it. But also, so it's very interesting to be here, you know, with my children who are kind of carrying a baton in a different way and to feel the continuation. And I think that was such a huge part of Don and Moki's practice. Were all those beautiful kind of silk works, were they originally made for performances and then they migrated into the home? Or is there a kind of blend of stuff that was made for the home and was there just no boundary between what was domestic and what was for performance? Yeah, I think everything could be in the home or on the stage. I don't think Moki really 
I mean, she painted furniture, everything. You know, she had a vision, that, you know, and she was a vi visionary, no doubt. But she wasn't, you know, she wasn't the kind of homemaker. She was like, okay. I mean, she was creating spaces. But I feel that a lot of the, and tell me if I'm wrong, I feel like a lot of the pieces, whether there were quite often a lot of our rooms had ceiling pieces or, you know, tapestries that would come out of a bag and get hung on a wall. I don't feel that she really made those things necessarily to fit this, oh, I'm going to make this piece for this wall. I, I think this will look really good. I don't think she thought like that. I think she was just working. Yeah. And then the pieces would, uh, of course, travel and be on, on stages. So I've yeah. seen them in so many different ways. But they were also a kind of home of the, part of the home environment <laughs> always. So what were you going to say? No, I was going to say, though, when I was thinking about the pieces that are in the show... Um, and it's a question that a lot of people ask that actually most of them are actually made for exhibitions, the bigger textile pieces or a few for workshops but many of them were made for example for the earlier tapestries were made first for this dome project, some that were hanging there and the sculpture that is there that's in the exhibition and then for the solo show she had in 73 that had a lot of tapestry works in it, a lot of them were also made for that show but they also had you know, many other lives in different places which would also hang in the home were also um in concerts were also in school workshops but actually i think that is actually something that many people don't realize about moki's work is she actually did make most of them with the intention of them being for exhibitions and definitely as artworks not sort of as decor yeah and i think that's quite an important thing it's just that she did they often were seen um by other people in in more in these other places that was not in the so-called art world, if you know what I mean. But it was often she was just wanted to find... It was just the places where, because of their like circumstances and also the projects they were doing, they were more seen in a music context or in an educational context. But actually, all the time, she's often, um, you know, always writing that she's always trying to find galleries and find shows. It's just that that wasn't also just, like, the places where they were... They were kind of... were at the time yeah I mean it's interesting because what nevertheless one of the things that I really love about the works in the show is that they feel like they've seen a lot of life <laughs> they've been lived with they've been loved they've had kids probably putting their dirty hands on them there's but you know you can feel that they've been touched which is, is not a sensation you get very often with artworks in galleries as well and there's something really special about that I guess it's very appropriate there's that kind of integration of the life into the works as well yeah and um, yeah, true. They have been all over different, many different types of locations. Um, and even even in the earlier works, there's some in the show of these large paintings from 1968 that are in the walkway towards the cafe here um, that are like, um, yeah, from 1967 and 68, which some of her really early artworks after she's finished studying. You know, um, she had made them as a whole series of paintings um, and then made a design for how they would create this um, sort of whole, like, theatre environment. And so she had always planned how they'd be displayed. So, yeah, I think it is an important thing to, to point out because at the same time, when they were at home, they became a whole wall of the house that she hung, the way she hung them. But, but I think that's something that people don't really realise about her is that she was making them with the intention of definitely with different um, displays and sort of exhibits in mind, but she also would just use them wherever they were taken as well. 
So I was very lucky because I've actually seen Moki's work before and I, I saw them in an exhibition that Linda put together at Nottingham Contemporary called, um, what was it, House of Fame, so, which actually, interestingly, is another connection with Nana because it had work by Judy Blame in it, which was really special. Um, and I'd love to know how Moki's work came to be in that show because I have to say, I'm, to my great shame, until your show, I was not aware of Moki's work at all. So what happened um, in 2017? I had a show in Stockholm, and then I was due to get a flight, and somebody said, oh, let's just go into Moderna Musique. Let's just go and have a little look at um, whatever was on. And um, I was looking at this in the collection, and it was all very admirable, in lots of story <laughs> pop-up. And then on the periphery of periphery of my vision I could see something about Donna Moki Cherry and I was like oh, look at my watch in 10 minutes to go and um and then I walked over to this um the corner of Moderna Musique and it was like going to like a kaleidoscope just opening up just really extraordinary and I suddenly having flashbacks from you know bedsits in Manchester and the mid-1970s and listening to Don Cherry and staring at you know at Moki's sleeves and never knowing anything about Moki. It was, impo- it was impossible. So there's that urgency. When you know you've got you know, 10 minutes to go, you're going to miss your flight. Mm-hmm. And you're, I was really trying to absorb, uh, we now have to say binge-watching, sort of like, <laughs> hyperventilating, I think, uh, you know, trying, to, trying to hold on to something, trying to see as much as possible. I think there were images um, rotating, etc. Uh, and then going on the plane and trying to... Um, trying to recall what I'd seen and trying to make sense of it. And that was it. It was such a, a deep impression. Right. Deep. And I think also because in the 1970s, you know, when you did buy an album, because of that physicality to it, and often having to save up for, like, for a week to even get the yeah. album, or having to wait as an import. So I suppose we really, as a kind of mandala, we'd really stare, or I would really stare at each yeah. album sleeve, you know, deconstructing it. So Moki's work would have gone in, like, really deep, 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 just staring at that sleeve and listening to um, Don's music. So that was it. So there's that um, very uh, impactful viewing at Moderna Musique, and then a year later I had a show in Nottingham, uh, which is the House of Fame, and the four galleries were four different rooms, so there was the House of Rest, the House of Unrest, and in the, fo- in the fourth, um, oh, there was also the House of the Future, and then the fourth gallery, I really wanted to be the abode of sound, I've always been fascinated by sound as much as by music, I mean there's a slight differentiation, um, and that was the chance. That was <laughs> okay. Now we can somehow, you know, bring bring Moki's work here, and that's when I was in touch with you. Naima was just you were incredible. I mean, it was we met, and then um, you'd be sending emails and saying, oh, "I've just opened this box, or I've just found this," and there's, there's great photographs. I think maybe of you all. I don't know who it was, but I'd see like, little hands holding up the large pieces, yeah. and then you'd see the feet underneath. I mean, and I was imagining you all as you as you were documenting for me. Yeah. And it was just something very joyous about that. Even it wasn't like again a sterile photograph. It was just very much. I've just found this or uh, a diary page, and that was just. I seem to sense your excitement too of how do we how do we present this how do we take this out into the world and um, that's what happened I can't remember how many pieces we 
we learned, I don't know. It was, it was a lot. Quite a lot, it was yeah. A lot. It was a some large display. ones as well, yeah. 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 yeah, it was a big room, the uh, main exactly. room there. And um, there was something so joyous, and so many people in Nottingham, or visitors, just sat in that room, just sat in that room. But I, you were saying earlier that you, were, you two were connected through Judy Blaine, that you actually... Yes, the which great, is, uh, the great yeah. late Judy, Judy Blaine. Um, so we had, so Judy Blaine, Judy had passed away the year. Yeah, which year was it? Six, four? Is it four or five years ago? Yes. Something, it's, four. yeah, something, something like that I've lost. 2018. Yeah. But Judy sort of, um, he was quite ill sort of by then, but he said that Linda had been in touch with him. They used to live in Manchester together. You knew each other. Yes. And he sort of reached out. I think he reached out to me and he was obviously reaching out to you because Linda had said, I'm doing this show and I would like to show, have some of Monkey's work in it. And he just sort of said, this is really great. This is really important. Like, just get your shit together. Just make it happen. <laughs> make sure that Naima does it. Naima obviously did did a great um, a great job. But I think also that connection was uh, also um, part of a, a, a sort of a little domino effect. And it was the very very first time um, that any of Moki's work was in an exhibition here. Then this is the second. So thank you for that. Judy was the glue, wasn't he? Judy was the glue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just just wanted to bring that up because I know that he's also has an important relationship with the ICA, and they did a show of his work here. So it was such. It feels like having him present here is really important as part of the conversation. And Um, Judy and Moki were really great friends. I mean, I have memories of (laughs) them sitting in Moki's studio, like sewing next to each other. You know, he'd be doing his a piece of jewellery, putting buttons on and Moki be doing something else and they'd be like cackling about something. <laughs> I, yeah. I just love that image. That's beautiful. Yeah. She'd probably and have a glass of wine and he's like <laughs> drinking a beer. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. um, so it feels like there's been a really concerted effort by the family, by, you know, by the three of you, to bring Moki to the fore. To, I mean, I don't want to say uncouple her a bit from Don's legacy but to make her, to celebrate her as an artist in her own right. Was there a kind of conscious decision that you wanted to start bringing her work into the public eye to to start celebrating her? Because it feels you know, you've obviously done a really beautiful job of showing the work and making curators aware of the work but is this is this been, was there a moment where you sat down and went, let's do this? Um, Mainly it was in when Modana Messia approached us wanting to do a show about her in 2015, the show was in 2016. Um, I guess that was the first show that happened after she died and then when we sort of like started organising material for that. And um, so that was kind of like, I guess, the beginning of it, although I always helped Moki from when I was small with her exhibitions and um, would stay with her a lot in the summertime and she'd like find ways to keep me busy in the studio and making stuff and then when I was a teenager and in my 20s I helped her like install a lot of shows and um the year before she died also in 2008 we we did an exhibition um at a jazz festival that was dedicated to Don that year in Sardinia and so then we put on a like a an exhibition that was about 
a lot of the work that they did together and had a lot of Moki's um, w- uh, tapestries in it. And so that was an interesting thing to do together as well. Um, so it was al- also just like a natural progression because I was already always involved, you know, with that. So, um, so yeah, the show in Modernity, I was trying to remember the question now. The show in Modernity was the beginning and then it's just continuing with also, it's just like all these works that are just sort of like in the house in different drawers and places and trying to just kind of obviously then, you know, look after it and also find the things. And, um, and I'm an artist myself um, and I also studied art history, so I'm just interested in all of the story and also... Um, more importantly than anything just the fact that people are really interested and want to see it and want to show it and artists and musicians that want to learn more about the history and story and the things that Donna Moki did and made Um, and so I really enjoy it also in many ways um, all of these projects like this one I was just wondering whether there was a kind of feminist imperative to it as well, because I know obviously, Nana, you've been very outspoken about women's issues, and Tyson, you've obviously... I mean, it, it's, it seems like it's such a strong theme to you as a family is to be kind of foregrounding women's work, whether there was a feeling that you really wanted to make this time for Moki and to create the space for her as well. Do you want to say something, Tyson, about that? Yeah, I don't... Like, I think it's been a... Um it's something that happened naturally. I don't think that, or like Naima has worked a lot on on the archive and, and Moki's legacy and our grandparents' legacy. But I think as a family, it's something that we've just done. Like, I don't feel like we sat and were like, okay, we're going to mm. do this now for this reason. I think it's just how we move, if that makes sense. And I think it, it is important to us all... Um, but yeah, it was kind of more of a, of a natural movement rather than like, okay, this is what we're going to do now. <laughs> but I think for Moki, you know, like you've talked, like she made a lot of this work to uh, to be shown and there's the piece in one of the vitrines, which you know, Naima, um, that she wrote in her 60s, I think, or just the piece about wanting to find space and be in galleries and show the work. So I think it was like, you know, something that frustrated her a lot and... Um, she would always be like, it's fine, I'm going to be famous when I'm dead. It will happen. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, you know, obviously it's sad, but I think it, it is really important to us that, that that happened. And I think it's, like, hugely, thanks to you, Naima, to, you know, who yeah. one day you're just like, this This has to happen now and I'm going to start pushing this. And and that is a huge reason why we're here. Mm. Yeah, we wouldn't be here without <laughs> it. And I think in answer to, you know, feminism and being a woman I think Moki was constantly if you look at her imagery and read her writing and where she was at you know she was always in a way that was a huge part of her dialogue you know Um, sometimes tongue-in-cheek sometimes in a quite funny way sometimes you know if you look at there's a piece out there with a sort of dinner setting with a kind of skeleton in the background. And I think, you know, there's some some deep messaging in there, I think. Someone asked me, actually, when the show was being hung, someone walked through yeah, in here asked. and said, what is this about? And I was like, oh, shit, I don't really know. <laughs> but it made me think. But I sort of think that there was something in there about, we could even go back to, like, stage is a home, home is a stage, um, uh, conventional homemaking you know, the pressures, table settings. You know, my mum came from a very kind of 
working class, very, very working class parents, both of them that came from nothing, but grow, but, but, you know, coming up in that era in Sweden, which became from coming from being basically a very poor country to a very middle class and everyone striving to kind of be the same and, you know, everyone changing their curtains annually. And, you know, so Moki was very confined in that space, but, um, broke out, but also, I think, um, carried it with her, had some, I mean, she said when she left home, she had, like, never really cooked or done anything. She had nothing in her that was interested in being domestic, right? Mm. She just wanted to go out into the world, be free, make, you know, and get into her, you know, creative spirit but but she also did have these deep-rooted kind of you know she would I mean even after she died there were like bags of pillowcases of uh, uh, plastic bags of pillowcases that she'd sprayed with a bit of water that she was going to iron you know and she had a thing like so many things that I do I I'll hear like Moki saying turn the if you have it we have it all these old sort of antique plates from and she's all, she was always like, turn the plate around so that you've got the right symbol, the flower is the right way. And do you know what I mean? So she, <laughs> she, she yeah, she had yeah. something that was very traditional and she liked to do things properly. Yeah. She didn't, you know what I mean? She was like, we're going to have an iron tablecloth. She always said, I'm a fiend for beauty. But, you know, I think also, I think I've, I've gone into a long rant, but I think that as a woman, you know, she... Sometimes I think, of course, the domestic aspect of all of the things that she was trying to do was overwhelming. And she felt that it, she couldn't be enough. She would sit sometimes and say, I've got you know, all this stuff that I want to do and I can't do it. And I know it was very lonely and you know, I can imagine going back to the Skeletor picture out there that maybe <laughs> she had made a really beautiful dinner. It's like sometimes when Don was coming home, she would make, you know... Literally like a Chateau Briand, you know, with a, when we came out of the vegetarian phase. And maybe he, <laughs> maybe he came back and was very distracted, like you are sometimes when you've been on the tour. I don't know. Anyway. But there's, yeah, that's <laughs> there that, there's that lovely note in the archive. Well, it's not, I mean, it's, there's a note in one of the archive displays that you have there, which is her saying, I didn't learn to be a woman, I didn't learn to be female. And having then to reconcile this thing that you'd not been taught how to do with being creative yeah, as well like you're a human until you're yeah. a teenager and then you yeah. are a woman you're not yeah. a human anymore you're just a woman <laughs> but, but I was also interested because you, you have also shown these works and, the, and these bits of writings where she's talking about having to do all the maintenance work and so there is a sense that there's a kind of like a lack of domestic equity that's going on as well that she's doing all of this creative work but she's also looking after everyone as well mm-hmm. yeah she took on you know a huge kind of like huge amount of yeah different roles all in one um and also just like i guess through also her values and also like a choice of how to also be a both a mother and an artist was it's like a then became really a lot of different things to maintain with also you know um prioritizing growing vegetables plus building everything in your home plus you know putting on 88 school workshops in one year for example (laughs) 
plus you know everything else so it's like partly it was a choice it is a choice for a way of life but it also was a lot of things to manage and definitely I think um as I you know mentioned briefly in the introduction that I just read um that I think in retrospect she probably realized you know how um, much work you know she put into all of this kind of like lifestyle as well as um you know very kind of I would say you know revolutionary approach to both performance um, music art and family all in one but after like that was like I guess the majority of the decade of the 1970s she kind of realized that it was a huge amount of work that mostly she went completely uncredited for no no one had any idea who made you know all of the art pieces that were in these um, collaborations for, for example in the three months they lived in the museum or on album covers or um, in these workshops that everyone talks about and for this exhibition for example um, you know there are um, a lot most of all the films shows this kind of documentation of those projects that um, Donna Murky did together and workshops etc but the actual um, exhibition focuses on people actually seeing the artworks because even though people maybe know about a lot of these projects no one has ever really seen the details or looked or had an opportunity to see the details of the actual artworks what's happening in her paintings there's so much going on you know that's actually the themes of her work that um you know, I guess as an artist of the 60s and 70s, I think she's actually has a huge contribution to that time. You know, that, of course, it often happens that people don't know about artists at the time. It's nothing new, but but I think she definitely realised later that the amount of work she probably put into all these things, but in the way that she did it, that wasn't in a normal, like, gallery way, etc., non-institutional, then meant that it was sort of like, I guess maybe she felt like just disappeared into, you know, um, mostly just the story of Don's music, I guess. Yeah. That's a, that's a really lovely jumping-off point to talk a bit more, actually, technically about Moki's work as well. And, Linda, since we have a sister of the scalpel here with us, <laughs> um, I'd really love to hear from you a little bit about this practice of collage and the significance of found material. Because what, what struck me, actually, as well, I was listening to Naima, was when, she, when you guys were talking about all these boxes of stuff, that's part of being a collage artist, isn't it? You're hoarders. <laughs> well, it's, it's being a hoarder, but really, you're going to say, no, actually, I'm an artist. <laughs> so as you were describing that, I'm putting it in a box and having visitors and thinking, <laughs> just put it all away. So, um, yeah, I'm a hoarder by any other name. Uh, but the great thing is that those boxes are always latent. They're always, you know, they're, they're there, and you never quite know what you, what you will find. Um, and the joy, I presume, then for you, for all of you, just that that complete mix within each box of ephemera and then very precious, precious items. So um, in my studio, I too have many boxes, and if suddenly I disappear tomorrow, <laughs> then my son will be talking to you. <laughs> Max will be asking for advice, like, well, how do you start? You know, how do you start to, to go through everything and... Uh, literally the, the fine tooth comb, because mm. it can be that one little Allen Ginsberg yeah. little drawing. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's that, like, like a magpie, a, a sort of magpie instinct to, mm. um, just to collect, never quite knowing what one will need yeah. in the future. And maybe again, from that very, from that working class background, growing up you know, in a very modest family, mm. and always a sense of lack, always a sense of having to save up for something, save mm. up for a holiday, or save up for... I don't know, a new a fridge. We didn't have a fridge, so I think we were, I was about 16 before we had a fridge. Yeah. I mean, uh, it was quite crazy. So perhaps it's that that one compensates um, 
that that sentimental holding on to things, but also um, it becomes more and more social history. I know quite often if I go to um, there's a certain shop I go to in London, which will remain nameless because uh, <laughs> um, I know that you know the curators from the British Museum are there. There's various institutions who are really now you know making collections of the ephemera, pornography, etc. That I collect. So. Um, there's the physical weight of what we store in those boxes. There's the emotional weight. There's the social weight. There's something about it, uh, that responsibility of just all that stuff. Sometimes mm. it's quite overwhelming. And I am sort of encouraged by you talking, thinking of my son, Max. I'm thinking, <laughs> oh, I'm just got to get my act together. <laughs> and at least go through lots of those boxes and just you know, do some of that, 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 that sorting through. But I know within five minutes, they'll be like, oh, my God, oh, you know. Yeah, I, I will have that discovery of, oh, this is from 1976, some flimsy flyer. But, you know, yeah. So I think it's the time involved. When you're trying to edit that or trying to catalogue it, just that, that emotional involvement too. Yeah. So many people are no longer with us, Judy, except yeah. a lot of friends, and now they're not here anymore. So um, that adds to the weight of what you keep and what you, what you keep close in your heart, I think. Because that's then another aspect of all of these applique works is that there's something diaristic about them because mm-hmm. it's all reused material that it's got this, it's it's got this this previous life that it's existed in before it's turned into this work that we're seeing as well. I mean, is there, is there a kind of like a is being an artist working in college is it a different way of reading the world that you're constantly looking for stuff that might be that you can then harvest and reuse. Yeah, I think it's a mixture of, of, of looking and also just um, the joy of finding. You know, so now, you know, if there's an Oxfam bookshop, I'm always in it there, of course. And maybe nine times out of ten, there's nothing. But then, yeah, you're always sort of <laughs> always on the lookout for... And I don't know what that thing is. I, I can, still can't explain it. I can't say, oh, yes, you know, I like pictures of horses or, I, or whatever, you know. Um, there's, that's, the, that, that's the part I can never quite articulate of yeah. why I buy and sometimes things are latent for maybe 10 years or maybe longer you know, there's like all these old books and magazines and the old playboys that are just like sitting around waiting for that moment when I suddenly go oh god yeah okay now, now, is, now is the time and I think looking at Moki's work I could feel that, that resonance that, that sense of that they said that there isn't that sterility there is an idea you can feel the those textiles have been used within domestic settings. They could have been a dressing gown. They could have been something found in a charity shop. That you, you sense a history. Even though we don't know those histories, you sense that they're there. They're really literally sti- stitched into those works. You can feel that. You can feel it. So where did she get the textiles from that she was using in these? Was she, or did she always have scissors on her? Was she just... I mean, she, I mean, she was a collector... And um, there were places where she specifically bought a lot of fabrics. So when we were in Paris, we would go to Barbès, which is full of life. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And the shops up in Barbès were mainly North African and West African women, some French white women, but mostly. And then Moki and me and my brother, she'd get in there, and it was like, you, 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 or you ask for how much you want, then you pay for it, then they cut it. So it was literally like these guys standing up on these sort of slightly raised things, and 
people just pushing and shoving and screaming. So that's where she bought a lot of her silks and her kind of fine fabrics and the kind of more sheer, whatever they would sort of be called. And then um, Soho in New York, for instance, was still very um, roughneck and mainly industrial. And I think Ornette Coleman was one of the only people that actually lived there and had a building. (laughs) The rest of it was just, you know. And so there were a lot of skips that had, um, because I think a lot of the materials were maybe like, um, what's it called, like furniture and, you know, curtains, upholstery kind of type things. So there were always um, skips full of bales of, fabrics and things so she would literally get it climb into the skip with her scissors and and cut fabrics <laughs> sometimes we I know don't do that so embarrassing. um yeah so embarrassing <laughs> oh, my god. oh my god so it was like that and then in one of the films uh I heard her which is very moving actually listening to Moki's talking just only get being able to do it but she was talking about um, one of the fabrics on the very big Chinrezi Buddha that she made, which I'll also add that she sat and made in a tiny little room. It's for like four meters long, and she never saw it until it was finished, fully laid out. But one of the pieces of fabric, is that right? Did you listen to her talking, yeah, saying she cut yeah. it out from a, a bum's I, she jacket? Well, well, <laughs> there's of. a correction not, to no. say that that's now not the word that people use. Oh, yeah, yeah, for a homeless job. Homeless, sorry. Anyway. Don't cancel me, please. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But, um, yes, she was talking, she was telling these children about um, how she makes the tapestries, and then she pointed out this fabric that she said she found a jacket on the street. I think it was a leather jacket on the street. Um, that had just oh, been abandoned, and, you know, thrown on the street. No one, it was didn't belong to anybody. And then these homeless guys on the street said, don't touch that lady, leave it alone. And and she was like, no, 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 it's fine. And she pulled her scissors out of her pocket and cut out the lining, um, which she really wanted to keep. And she said to them, you find lotus flowers everywhere. Yeah, that was, yeah, that's, uh, yeah. yeah. But that was how, yeah, she found <laughs> some of the fabrics. A lotus flower in the homeless man's jacket that was left behind she didn't steal his jacket he wasn't there i don't think but it made it onto the shinrazi and so the fabrics were you know she collected them uh, all over but there so there were these kind of hubs where where she would and then obviously buy from other places too because I, I was really intrigued by what the crossover was between her spiritual practice and this work of... Because also, you've got a very strong spiritual practice as well, and I just was wondering whether there was this kind of crossover, collage, spiritual, Buddhist kind of... I don't know whether there's something to it, whether there's something about putting all these pieces together and making harmony out of all of these materials that are pulled from all these different places, or... Yeah, I mean, I know that people... Or there were, uh, Don and Moki were practicing Buddhists for a while, practicing Tibetan Buddhism. And that was for a period of time. And I think they were very interested in you know, that and many other things that had spiritual value. But beyond that, what they were doing was absolutely spiritual. I mean, the music was spiritual. The work was spiritual. And I think that their, their vision, you know, Moki had a, a vision that was definitely a, a, a vision that involved, you know, wanting to change 
the world, you know, the world that we lived in, you know, maybe not like in the grand sense of I'm going to go out and change everything, not that, but just this is, you know, it started where we lived and how we lived and how she worked. And I think the spirituality was, was absolutely there all the way, you know, through all the, 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 the dialogues and the things that came up in the, in the work. It was very much from... There's a really nice bit in that same bit of film when she's talking about the Chinrezi where she's saying so much in Western art practice. It's about the individual, about inventing something. And she was saying how amazing it was to make something that she knows thousands of people have made before. I don't know, I just, I just watched it again today and was like, wow, that's, such, like, that's so beautiful. Um, and I feel like that kind of, yeah, collective spiritual experience or something, I don't know, I just was like, oh, wow, this is really... Uh, yeah, beautiful mm. sentiment. Mm. And it shows a sort of modesty, because I suppose yeah. as artists, there's always this desire to be the first to do something yeah. new. There's a kind of pressure as well. It's to about you. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and, um, so I think yeah, there's that humility there, isn't there? Placing oneself in a tradition mm. and thinking, thousands of people have made the same mm. image yeah. as I. And I think that um, whereas Moki was using the needle to stitch together and I used, you know, a surgical scalpel to cut mm-hmm. and then glue. I think it's partly about the fragmentation of self sometimes, especially mm-hmm. in the present age we're in. Just yes. that f- increasingly that, that sense of, um, of fragmentation and everything becoming quite aerosolic and literally diff- diff- difficult to pin, to pin down, to fix, fix ideas, opinions or whatever. I think um, for me, yeah... There's something very pacifying and very soothing about going to the studio and then I will meditate or whatever and then just get very, 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 very still so that by the time I work, um, sometimes I suppose the word, you know, monteur, like photomontage, monteur, is to do with engineering. You know, if you go back to Dada, surrealism, that was a generation that did not want to be artists. It was more to do with, you know, with, with being an engineer. It's quite cold and clinical about that. And I think in the in the um, in those days, in the early seventies, I think a lot of us weren't really thinking in in, in terms of being an, an artist. It was like almost quite an uncool thing yeah. to do. And I was wondering almost. With the Moki again, it was just um, creating this world that was beyond yeah. status. It wasn't to do with an art world that was nowhere near ready for women like Moki. That it was something about just establishing um, a sphere, a zone yeah. that was all to do with stage as home, home as stage. Yeah. Yes. There's something, yeah, that when you said that, that um, I thought about a lot recently, and and um, when Nicola and I did a. Uh, tour of the exhibition I talked about it a little bit then that uh, it which is that also which was that actually even though Moki studied to be a fashion designer and that was her intention uh like yeah it went in all different um directions but essentially I really think that mostly what she was doing was really uh based in survival she came off of different ways of using say techniques from um, her skills, like really highly skills with um, textiles and making clothes, to then like realizing that you know she could make these huge textile pieces that could then be used for this, or try and find work teaching workshops, or take that to a um, museum, for example, to a school, to a theater, and actually reinvention in many ways because the, most of the time they actually genuinely really needed to earn money and find work. I mean. I'm sure you can talk more about that, but it's not like gla- glamorous. I mean, they were definitely all is always struggling and survival, and at the same time, 
like the topic of this as a mother as well. Find how can you also do something where you could take your kids, you know, and do yeah the children's TV show for example that they that is in the exhibition here and finding ways that essentially like you were saying as well she probably wasn't sitting thinking she's going to be a glamorous artist but was like what can I make and do with these skills and combined with Don's music and combined with their children where we can actually get paid you know and I think that's also an important thing to to keep in mind you know because at the end of the day it was was always about that too and she had this incredible talent of making the most beautiful things out of nothing like whether that was I don't know, the lining of a jacket. Well, not that it's nothing, but, mm. like, I didn't thought of some of her meals or, like, you were talking about before, not having a fridge. She mm. had this amazing ability, like, preservation, but also inventing from that preservation, if that makes sense, and making these... And improvising. Improvising or, like... Yeah, I think we did it... One, we think we have it as a family where you'll take, like, three really random things from a food cupboard and make, like, this incredible <laughs> feast <laughs> that we all have, and I think that really comes from her, and it being... Tasty but beautiful and, yeah, improvised, inventive. I think she was, you know, of course we've touched on some of the hardships and life isn't easy at all. Life isn't easy. But I really feel, when I think about um, kind of growing up, um, uh, there was, you know, even through the things that were very difficult, there was this inspiration that I feel that was there, that was the drive. And I think Moki was very inspired by life. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, there were days when she was maybe incapable of kind of moving and she would just maybe stay in bed and... And read, you know, she would, we had a lot, I mean, in New York, there was one kind of bedroom in the loft, there was so many books in there, but also like there was a library bus that would come to buy our house in um, Sweden, like a country library bus, and she basically kept that business going. It was just her and one other farm lady. That's true, it's gone now, isn't it? Right, and she would just fill up two crates with books and you know when she was having a difficult time she would read about and she would just get if you looked into that box I mean there were like books about porcelain there'd be a book about you know uh the Himalayas there'd be a book a cookbook there'd be you know just very random weren't they (laughs) so historical books she had the philosophy she'd have the radio on um so I don't know uh, exactly what <laughs> that's even connected to a question. I don't think so what I'm talking about. But anyway. So, well, since we're on the subject of books, Lena, you, you've been through this really emotional process of writing your autobiography. And we are sitting in front of this photograph, which I presume has you in it, in the geodesic dome. And we've... And I'd really love to hear, I mean, you must have been really trawling through all of this stuff in the last year writing the book, what your personal memories are of having been in this, living in this geodesic dome outside the museum, of being on tour with organic music, of having Piff Paff Puff filmed in your house. Um, have you, I mean, if you, if, do you hold on to memories of this time? I mean... <clears throat> An autobiography. It sounds really serious. It 
is. It's it very is serious. So I find that very weird. Um, I think I've started writing because I, and I think I kind of said this, I just started feeling like um, very conscious of um, and kind of blessed, like, wow, come here. I mean, we've lost soldiers along the way, um, been through some crazy things, but I'm here and I just felt very... It's not compulsively, but like, you know, just naturally starting to reflect. I said this already on things and um, kind of needing to know kind of how, why, why, you know, how did I get here in a way? Because I think with my work and, and the way that we are a family and obviously it's very much connected to what we've been talking to tonight. I just feel like I've just, you know, we've just, we're doing it. We're doing this. Let's do this. It's going to be, this is how we do it, you know. And, but of course there is more to it than that. And so I've, I've been writing and it's been kind of funny because, you know, you start thinking about something and like with the dome, for instance, me sort of think, oh yeah, I remember this. I remember that. But then as you open up the box, there are all kinds of, details and things in there where sometimes I like oh god I wore yellow socks that day wow um I don't know how much I wrote about about being in the dome I've written about some other things but it was an amazing summer we were there for like what three months see this is the kind of thing I have to ask Naima because I have no idea <laughs> it just seemed like two and a half, yeah. two and a half months and it, half. it felt like a lifetime but you know when you're a kid and you're like uh, two and a half months would be like a year, you know, like a summer holiday. Um, my family didn't go on holidays. We would go and like live in a dome. <laughs> so, um, and it was amazing. I mean, me and Eagle Eye would wait in the bus, you know. We always had a bus all day for it to get packed and ready. And we'd be in there just like desperate to leave. And we did that. Eventually we left. We had a cat in the car. The cat got stuck in the motor of this car and we drove up the road. We couldn't find it till we heard a scream. Luckily, it had a few lives left. So we drove the rest of the way with the cat in the box with a scratched nose, you know, and got to the modern museum where we'd obviously been before, but in this different setting with the dome and the garden. We lived in the, what had been the prison because the museum was a prison, bar army barracks was where the museum is nowadays. So one of our, our, we had like two rooms and that was basically some old cells where, you know, quickly Moki unpacked the kitchen thing and hung some fabrics and made it, and made it mm. wonderful and made it home. And then we had the dome and um, I bet, you know, I loved it because basically I had free reign of the modern museum. There was always things going on in the dome. There was always a kind of a, a just a breathing movement of people and music and playing sometimes Don would just be on the piano by himself and Moki'd be doing stuff and other times there'd be lots of people there but I personally I spent most of my time thinking I was like a, a guard in the inside the museum <laughs> kind of walking around with my hands <laughs> behind my back telling people not to touch stuff and then I would try and touch the goat. Who made that goat with the tire around its waist? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'd be like, let me just see if I can touch the goat. 
So that, I mean, that is kind of what my experience... I love you being the authoritarian in the hippie movement. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But, yeah, you know, know, yeah, I mean, that's sort of some of the things that that you respond with. I, I had some ideas when I was younger that I would be a nurse and, you know, marry a policeman was even one of my dreams. <laughs> at one, at one. It didn't last, thankfully. <laughs> but, yeah, no, I really, yeah. Anyway, I think I had, yeah. But I think um, what I realized more and more, which was another thing I very consciously think of, is like how much everything that's led me to where we are today is connected to where I come from, you know? And that's a, an amazing thing, and it's such a kind of privilege and such a beautiful thing. And even though my parents absolutely, they were happy to, you know, when I came to spend time here with Ari up from the slits, they were like, please, you know, even though I was only 16, and they, I'm sure they were, had their worries, but, you know, they knew that I, ne- I needed to... They wanted to see me find, um, you know, whatever it was I needed to find. Or so anyway. So and then, you became a and then I became a mother at eighteen. <laughs> yeah, and pretty much did what my mother did. I guess I brought Naima came on tour when she was six weeks old. I'd love to hear about your experiences of being on tour as kids as well, because this is the thing that we're told. Okay, that you I can't have to do go and pee. So you guys talk about touring. <laughs> I love I mean, this. I guess we felt like this was like a friends and family conversation, so you're definitely <laughs> keeping with that. Great. So. <laughs> I mean, I guess it wasn't that different to what mum was describing. I mean, when I was a little, I worked in catering on her tours, and I would like walk around thinking I was like taking orders and thinking that I was running the, the kind of catering. Age three or four. <laughs> I think I was like seven, and then you'd get to, you know, we, we had a bus, and then you'd get there, and mum would be like, I mean, Naomi, you're seven years older, so you were probably like a young teenager at the time, but mum would be like, you know, this is the venue, you can go, just don't leave the venue, but kind of go, and then I got myself a job at catering, and then would just work there every day, probably, yeah, that was my version of being a guard, I don't know, what do you, <laughs> what do you, what do you remember? Uh... I guess if you were six weeks old, that's like really tiny. Oh, yeah, I don't, I don't remember that. But, <laughs> but um, well, I don't know. Do you mean, like, just in general how it is as a child in that kind of... Yeah, I mean, because I, I think sometimes if you're a child of artists, it can be the artists expressing themselves. Um, I mean, we can talk about this because your mum's out of the room, right? <laughs> <laughs> Quick. You know, you, you know you can, there can be the artist expressing themselves at the expense of the child, or you can have the children that are brought along for the ride... And it's really difficult to get that balance right. And you quite encounter, often encounter, and I'm sure not you guys, but you quite often encounter children of artists who go... I mean, it, it, it's really funny hearing people talking about having fancies about marrying policemen because you quite often get these children that kind of go, I hated the bohemian lifestyle. All I wanted was normal parents. And then they grow up and they become accountants, mm-hmm. which you guys blatantly haven't done. But it's just really interesting to <laughs> I hear. I tried my best. I, <laughs> I only just started doing music the other day because I was like, please, <laughs> I just want to do something else. But so how much of your early years were you? Because you, you were the famous bump, weren't you, Tyson? Yeah. Um, <laughs> how much of your childhood were you guys on tour? I mean, how many, how many years of touring were there? Were you touring with your dad as well? Or? We were actually at home quite a lot. We were yeah. at home quite a yeah. lot. 
I think um, I think mum was really conscious of like I guess her from her upbringing of of not having a distinction. Um, you know, we were part of her life and part of her work, but I think she also really was like, we need to, you know, our home is our home and, and we need to have that sense of normality and grounding. So I think a lot of the time... Uh, hi, Mum. You, <laughs> you know, they would travel and work and we would, like, stay at home and go to school and, and, and stay with family members or, or other people who stayed with us. But I think um, in the summers we would go... Well, there was a... When I was, uh, I guess, six, seven and eight... We did a tour every summer, those three summers in a row, I think, which is when we were on the bus. And um, and then, you know, you had Naima, like you said, and went on tour when she was six weeks old. I think you had maybe three weeks off when I was born, and then we went travelling. And then when Mabel was also still breastfeeding, you went on tour. Because yeah. you, you were pregnant with Tyson really at a kind of pivotal <coughs> moment as well. So it was, that was a difficult moment to combine motherhood and performing, I imagine. Or was no. It di- no. <laughs> no, I mean, it wasn't difficult. I mean, in a way, and I, I think we sort of talked about this when we were talking before we did this. Like, I think it's a very, like, I, very, I, I, I want to be quite gentle in the way that I said that f- for me, family has been very much in the center of everything that I do. I wouldn't say that I've done it all perfectly at all, but it's definitely been the thing that has been a big part of my revolution as a woman, being able to be a mother and to be who I am, which is a big part of that is obviously me as a mother, but to also be a woman with a, a body and a, you know a, a life force, and I think that in the time, in that time, I mean, I was very much part of a kind of a, a family of people who were, you know, coming out of of a lot of things. But there was a kind of attitude of like, yeah, we're we're going to do this our way, you know. And I didn't want to have to make that choice. I mean, Tyson. You know, you weren't planned. <laughs> I mean, it was different. When I got pregnant with Naima, I had been dreaming. You know, I was like, I really want to be pregnant. But Tyson, but I very much felt that it was like, it's very powerful sensation of like, okay, this is happening. What, yeah. No, I was just going to say for you to be 17 and, and, you know, to be like, this is what I, I need to do now. Mm. Um, I need to become a mother. I think a lot of... of people maybe would have ideas about that yeah and like people in um, the music business I mean I think before I made a solo record I was in Rip Rig and Panic and Float Up CP and that was very much a big collective and a family and you know but all of a sudden making a going and you know signing a record deal and that whole thing and people sort of going who are you going to be and there was a sort of list of of other black women or women of color that were like, you know, Janet Jackson or Whitney Houston or which one of these are you going to kind of be like? And I was like, well, actually, <laughs> I'm sorry, but, you know. but I'd, And so um, the experience of that it was time for Tyson to come and that it, we were the music was happening and the record was being made 
And, you know, Judy was like, well, we'll just have to fucking get some stretchy clothes, won't we? It'll be fine. Be lovely. There's the, uh, the interview... The interview after Top of the Pops, which I found on YouTube years ago, uh, which I saw recently. I think it was in the... Uh, uh, someone made a film for The Face about you. And the guy's interviewing you after the performance. And he's obviously terrified. Like, so beautiful and, like, quite heavily pregnant in these little shorts. And he's like, you know, should, how do you feel? Should you be doing that in your condition? And mum's like, I'm pregnant, I'm not sick. <laughs> and then he's like, oh, okay. And he's like, is it your first? She's like, no, I've got a seven-year-old at home. Hi, Neymar. And he's like, what do I do with this woman? And I just oh, was like this. <laughs> yeah, because it was like, you know, it was, you know, it was a choice. There was something in the kind of ex- thing of like motherhood, you know, that was, there's nothing sexy in a way. You're not mm-hmm. sexy when you're pregnant. You're not sexy. You're not, you're a mother that's not sexy, do you know what I mean? And I feel almost like even in those days, those days, but it was also the thing like, almost like people didn't even want you to say that you might have a partner or a a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a person that you were seeing because it would like take away something from someone, you know, in a bedroom with a poster. Do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, but we have a life here. So, but I think, so... For me, and obviously because of how I grew up, the kind of continuation of making families and living within families and working in collectives and communities has been a huge part of of what I do and what we do. And I couldn't have made it without, you know, my kids and my family and the cousins, you know, everybody, actually, because we've all had Judy, you know, we all made it happen you know and I think that that's probably a huge part of where I, where I come from but I also what I didn't say that I wanted to say is that you know I say this very gently I don't think that this is the only way to do it and I think that for women it is a very complex thing you never know how it's going to be when you have a kid you can't say oh I'm just going to take my kid and go everywhere and everything will be fine because you don't know who that person is that's coming into your life. Mm. When I had Naima, yes, we did go on tour when she was six weeks old. But I said, I will try. And if it doesn't work, I, we'll go home. Yeah, that's how it is. And I think, you know, it is also a, a huge, um, not compromise, but, you know, sacrifice, even though it brings you so much. And it is difficult. And, you know, I have lived and worked and you know, and I think we're a great family, but, you know, it hasn't always been easy, and there were times when I didn't get it together to maybe get my own, spend as much time writing and doing things that I maybe needed to do, because we were a big family, and there were always lots of people around, and I've given a lot of love and expression, I mean, through music, but also making dinners, and, you know, it's how I express a lot, a lot of things in the love of family. Well. Yeah, yes. it's interesting. It's like it sounds a lot like Moki. And yeah. I'm thinking about what you were saying, Naima, about it, you know being about survival. And I meant to say it at the time, but the moment passed. But I was like, wow, that really sounds like now. That sounds like us as creative people here in London, and you know, as people with families. And I was like, wow, actually, that's so interesting. That's kind of what we're doing in this climate at the moment. Yeah. 
I've got about a billion more questions I want to ask, but I've just realised <laughs> that it's eight o'clock. Um, particularly, there were some really, there were, there were, yeah, I feel really bad because I've, I've literally got like three more pages of questions. I was <laughs> but, I, but I did promise I'd move on to questions for the audience, and I'm sure that we've got a lot of audience questions. Hi, um, thank you. Um, I just wanted, it's not a very interesting question actually, it's just about the colour in Moki's work. Is, is there anything that you can say about the significance of the choices in relation to the materials, I guess, the fabric and the paintings in particular? Well, definitely colour is, you know, really important in her work and um, a tool in a way, I would say, you know, and I don't think there was necessarily any specific choice in colours. It's just like very bold um and primary colours, actually. And and now I'm remembering, now when we're talking about it, that in the film, uh, on one of the small TVs in the small room of the exhibition, where um, Moki's talking about uh, how her tapestries to these kids, and then at the end, Don is talking about her work, which is really interesting. And then, and then he says, oh, Moki spent most, like, a year or something mixing colours when she was studying, and then she decided that she actually wanted to use... Uh, mainly the like primary colors, so it was definitely really like bold. Um, she always goes with these kind of like bold and very, um, I guess, like strong colors of, of each. And then um, she always used really particular paints. There was, um, uh, for example, these kind of like vinyl paints, and then what you are called flash paints, which she mostly used then for for like decades, which are like really matte and really really strong that are, like, made for murals. You know, we look at so many of these artistic movements, and it's so... You don't often get to actually get to talk to the families and, you know, the people that were part of them. You know, like, we look at them, and it's such a big, specific movement that Moki made around education and family and children that is very unique, I think, in the art world. And, you know, like, we're working, for example, on a, a music ed, like a kids show today about art direction and things that are very much inspired by this world. You know, like, coming from this, this, these experiences in the 70s and now, you know, has it shaped how you think about the world and what you think the world needs around these kinds of things? I mean, obviously, everyone's creative, everyone's an artist, but... I don't know, is there something more specific to that? You know, language or how we communicate or how we think about the world. It could be spirituality, it could be anything. So it's just such a rare opportunity to have everyone here actually have gone through these experiments. <laughs> so <laughs> I guess the question is, how did the experiment really work, you know? It's so hard, isn't it? Because it's just your life. Like, yeah. it's hard to... Um, reflect on because when you're growing up you're just you're in it if that makes sense but I know for us as uh I suppose Man uh, Moki's grandchildren we've spoken a lot about um how to like make sure that we share their so Don and Moki's values and what they kind of lived for and what they wanted to um yeah, I suppose what what they wanted to share with people. So that's like education is a massive part of that and their kind of way of living where everything is integrated and intertwined and, um, you know, a kind of a, a live, creative living experience. But I don't know if that, if you, both of you have something better to say. <laughs> but I think it's, it's, yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to, and people say this quite a lot and they're like, you know, how was it growing up uh, in your family or... 
I think it's hard. It's hard to reflect on because you're you're just in it. Yeah. But I think it's important. The educational side of it, I think, is is really important to all of us. Well, yeah, and all, and I was just thinking that I think a lot of the things that, for example, in workshops and um, projects that they did, is just still so relevant today. Like, why are we even here here talking about it? Otherwise. You know, that's what I think is really interesting is like, wow, why is this actually worth speaking about still now? And, you know, these kind of like topics like, um, you know, connecting with children, like artists connecting with children or musicians connecting with children or in schools. Um, you know how important that is and probably still doesn't even happen enough or how much say Moki was talking about the environment and really you know there's like pieces of hers drawings talking about how people could live in apartment blocks that also would save create energy that also where you could grow vegetables what you could do with the parking lot there's this is in the actually for the Moderna Museum at Utopian Visions exhibition where they lived in the dome in the catalogue at the center page that she made is about that and um and also just like why improvisation I think is so important and uh, extremely kind of like still such a huge, you know, um, movement within certain types of music and musicians, you know, it's still I think something really important after these years even that we've gone through with COVID and everything, why people are, for example, now so interested in what Moki and Don did. There seems to be something yeah. that still we can learn a lot about that maybe we still haven't really worked out exactly why well, what it is it's communication and we need to communicate <laughs> community and 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 community. and community exactly and and i think that you know there's something in the kind of experience of of doing and these kind of things that you're talking about within communities working with children music and the passing on of of um ideas and and making people feel empowered and knowing their worth, you know. But I think there's also the experience of of the kind of on a deeper level with music or things that you do together, gardening or you know. There's a lot of things. It isn't just. I mean, people think about art as this very specific thing. I mean, the energy, artistic energy, is in things that you do that that take you away from just grinding in here, that take you into this mind in here. And and I think, therefore, like what you were just saying about improvisation or creativity or the things that you make or bake or whatever the hell, right, is so important and so valuable or playing music together, you know? I mean, I know that... I'm sitting here rambling on about stuff, but actually <laughs> I can only really communicate the very deepest things through things that have no words, mm. you know, and that's the movement, <coughs> dancing, music, sound, being in a room. I mean, I, on Friday, you know, we've just come out of carnival and on Friday I went to the mangrove warm up in All Saints Road and, you know, it's beautiful. Uh, on on many levels, because you've got it's in the community, it's on the street, it's outside where the mangrove was, which was still going when I moved to London. It was the front line. It's now become, trying to be a very posh street or something, but you know. It, but there's still heart there. It's still deep. And the steel band. I mean, there was like seventy or eighty of them playing. You were there. I mean, it's just, and you know that the guy that runs that steel pan orchestra 
I know him. And, you know, he's a li- he saves lives because he gets kids that are living, you know, growing up out, you know, that are just, might just be out in the streets, whatever. You know, it doesn't, but he, he brings them in and it's an incredible, powerful life force. And like the other day, we were just standing there like, wow, listening to them, all these layers and, you know, just watching them playing. Ages. And, you know, it's this, it's, and it's eight, yeah, different ages and, you know, and there's something in there. I don't know. It just yeah. took me into that. But just like it is very important and it's very deep and, and it's very powerful. Yeah, and yeah. we need to keep these. I think also there's a really nice piece of Moki's writing in the exhibition where she talks about um, how much children always champion her and champion her work. And I just thought about how in our family, obviously, we are all living and, and moving and working generations together. But I feel like children are very much like a part of. Uh, our lives and like how you communicate you know I think there's there's so much to be learned from children and I thought of a piece of your writing that's in your book because I've seen a bit of it um (laughs) where you're talking about how when you when you were little uh you know Moki put a lot of trust in you she was like you know even though you're only like three you would stand in the window and chat to people and she's like well I trust you to not to not fall. I mean, it sounds a bit mad, but I think... Yeah, on the third I think, floor you know, she, Moki had a lot of respect for children and, and a lot of respect for how you can learn from children and not to kind of lose that creativity. And I think a lot of people are looking for that, like you were saying, after COVID, like tapping in, getting out of your head and tapping into your sort of inner feeling, inner child. I'm going to do another round of questions, but there's actually just, there's one really important question that I just wanted to chat with Linda about because we've been talking a lot about children but family isn't just children Mm -hmm. it goes in the other direction as well and when we talk about caregiving as artists it isn't just particularly as women it's not just about looking after children it it also is looking after parents Mm -hmm. and I know that Linda for you as an artist you've taken time out to look after your son but also Mm -hmm. to look after your mother and that's something we talk about much less yeah, and I, I suppose it's something we don't particularly plan for either, because yeah. we never quite know. I suppose the child's growing up, we can we think we can yeah. predict a kind of, you know, <laughs> the, uh, how that child will develop. So, at the other end of life, yes, my mother had um, dementia and then Alzheimer's, and I've seen before that she became like a child again, yeah. and there's something very beautiful in that. In case people have that terror of a parent with dementia, Alzheimer's, and there is something again, just find that 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 innocence there where the woman who was the mother suddenly she's like the little child and that you become the mother figure mm. and I think in those situations again it's almost like an improvisation it was really a, mm. I think the best way to deal with dementia and uh, Alzheimer's if you if it's a loved one it's like an improvisation yeah. where maybe at one point you are the child and suddenly oh your mother or your father is the child <laughs> and it's and if you just go with that if you go with the improvisation and uh, it can be really, be- it can be yeah. so surreal and, ex- and beautiful and frightening and tender, etc. So, yeah, that's the bit. Maybe there's some planning often or not, <laughs> as we know, uh, you know, about birth and when we have. Uh, a lot of artists have to decide when, when to have their children, don't they? It has to be quite, you know, strategic now. Um, but the other end, yeah, we don't know. We don't know. And that, um, some people aren't mothered. Some people aren't fathered. Mothers can disappear at an early age, so um, that's a very, very good point. And there's something briefly I was going to make, I think, around improvisation, mm. and generationally, uh, generationally, I think 
that you and I, Milky, we had, we grew up with the right to fail. You know, you could improvise, you could experiment. Mm. And I think when, say, 80s and Thatcher comes along, suddenly that goes, mm. that begins to disappear in the culture. People mm. suddenly are, are, are terrified mm. to be seen failing in any way. And yeah. I think maybe social media now makes it even worse. That oh, yeah. You're on, you're performing, everything's great, everything's fantastic. Yeah. And I really miss that. And um, yes. I really, yeah, just the right to fail. It's so important yeah. to just completely fuck something up or just, yeah. just yeah. or not even well, have failing a, an is end. actually kind of like it's when it's also it's also your you know it's what someone said something so great about like failing is actually not winning but do you know what I mean like mm. you have to fail mm. to mm. to take the journey wherever it might take you to, to do Absolutely. it again, to come again, to figure it out. Like your biggest lessons are your failures yeah. in a way, if you don't have them. It's like I constantly say to my kids, well, you have to go through it. You know, you can't go around it. You have to go through it. <laughs> so please all fail miserably yeah. something tomorrow. Love just like, just think I'm going to fail. <laughs> Thank you so much for talking about that. I, mean, I know it's quite a sensitive subject, but I did want to include it in this conversation. It's important, yeah. I think, to have yeah. it. So, hi, I'm Rose. I met Nena probably when she was about 19. I'm about 10 years older than her. And, um, yeah, we were part of the same Portobello scene. And it's really interesting for me to now see Nena with her children here and talking so intimately about actually somebody that I did, wasn't aware of, so I wasn't aware then of your mother. And and now I'm so interested in in kind of, you know, that she... It sounds like she really gave you permission to be who you became. I mean, God, sending you, you know, letting you come to London and join Ari up when you were 16 is quite a phenomenal thing. And I'm really interested in your reflections on that. But I'm also interested in, um, you know, maybe how painful it was for her that she wasn't acknowledged as an artist at that time. And yet we haven't really talked about how, um, you know, art, her sort of art was considered craft. I mean, you know, we all know from Grace and Perry how, you know, ceramics were, you know, looked down on until the Turner Prize acknowledged him. So I, I wondered if you could talk about that a bit. I mean, I feel like maybe, Naima, you could elaborate, but I know for a fact that actually yesterday, it was 14, 13 years since Moki died? 14. 14 years, God. And, like, in the days just before she died, and, you know, no one thought she was going to die. I mean, she... But it was like she had... I'd never seen her run out of steam or kind of energy or, like, um, passion or something. But she just was, like, tired all of a sudden. And she'd had an exhibition in Stockholm. She died on the 29th of August. So in June, she'd had an exhibition... <clears throat> and um, the guy hadn't really done anything to sort of promote it, and she she just was like very deeply disappointed. She had a, hadn't had a show in Stockholm for a long time, had she? And that was all collage work. Um, and it was like just all the years of the kind of knocks and blows that she'd been dealt, but always just kind of kept going through swept over her and then like the next day she was gone I mean it was just so Naima was 
was there and she was yeah it was like yeah it was like she just couldn't go and go on but still it's so powerful isn't it because when you see the work you know all that energy and kind of devotion to what she was doing and that's why they they shine I mean they're timeless they're so like I'm constantly learning from the work but of course she was kind of like I think not taken seriously you know she'd try and every now and then go and see a gallery in New York I mean there was even one time when she went to some place and some guy just like put some porn on the, some video machine do you know what I mean it was just like what the fuck? Do you know what I mean? So I think, but there, but I, you know, um, and I guess yeah. it wasn't seen as fashionable. It, it wasn't, wasn't fashionable seen as work, you know. But she still but carried she, on doing what she believed in in of making. Of course, and in a way, she was like way ahead of yeah of things. Always, she was always ahead. I think you know. But um, yeah, do you want to do you want to say something? You or you? That Moki's work feels so now. It's that we find only just caught up with her and still are catching up with her. Yeah. That's the feeling. And like you say, that the longer, the more time we spend with that work, the more it reveals itself. And there's mm. layers upon layers. And on the surface level, it can act with patterning and collage, but almost like she was encoding everything until we were all mm. smart enough mm. <laughs> and clever enough to really sort of plug into that work I mean I, yeah I said before she kind of joked about it in a kind of morbidly funny way but I think she knew that do you know what I mean I think she knew that everyone was yeah. as much as she was frustrated I think she knew it was because people hadn't caught up yet a rangatira is a chief and it doesn't denote whether a chief is a male or a female mm. they come in both forms so um, I felt a very much um, the insight that you've provided as um, both as your mother and your grandmother has, has given us an insight into her rangatiratanga and the way that she was in the world. And um, that's a gift. And I heard you talking about a village like because our, our tupuna often spoke about how important it was um, to remember the village and the whānau that you originate from, which creates that intergenerational gifting of who we all are at the source, at the real source of who we are. And um, I know that as we sit in 2023 that our children's hearts need to be more connected than disconnected. And the only way they're going to be connected, really, is through creativity, Mm -hmm. through imagination, through visualisation. And actually, that's a part of the brain that's in the prefrontal cortex. And that actually activates compassion, empathy, and all that creativity that you're talking about. So I want to thank you um, on behalf of all of us sitting here in this room for allowing the presence of your mother to shine through. It has touched my heart and the hope 
for the generations to come because our tūpuna also talk about te ahurihuri, the world that revolves on an axle of strength. And the axle of strength means that we're thinking of past, present and future aspirations. And um, again, that's what you've bought. So for me, it's create moments, make memories and shape destinies. Thank you. Thank you. I think, thank you. I, think, I think that's a beautiful moment to end on. Thank you so much. Um, and thank you to my amazing panel, Linda, Tyson, Nana, and Naima, and congratulations on the show. And thank you all for being thank here. You. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.